The Religious Sense by Luigi Gisani. Chapter 2. The Second Premise. Reasonableness. Our first premise, the need for realism, has pointed to the primacy of the object. We have concluded that the method by which something is approached is determined by the object. It is not imagined at the subject's whim. The second premise, on the other hand, singles out the acting subject, man. By reasonableness, I mean what this word says about a common experience. Even philosophers must use reasonableness in their everyday relations. In this sense, reasonableness means the realization of the value of reason and action. But even the term reason might easily be called into question. By reason, I mean the distinctive characteristic of that level of nature that we call man, that is, the capacity to become aware of reality according to the totality of its factors. The term reasonableness, then, represents a mode of action that expresses and realizes reason, the capacity to become aware of reality. Reasonableness, a structural requirement of man. Let us, first of all, ask ourselves, how do we perceive whether or not an attitude is reasonable? Since reasonableness is a characteristic of our experience, it is only by observing our own experience that we can discover what such a characteristic implies, according to the principle of realism discussed in chapter 1. The following examples will demonstrate this point. Suppose a friend of ours, at a time of year far from Halloween, were to appear before us decked out in the helmet and a mail of a medieval knight, to our astonished questions, he might, in all seriousness, express the fear that one of the bystanders might want to attack him, and that he has prepared himself for such an eventuality. We would feel that we are faced with an abnorm abnormality. To be sure, we would not perceive our friend's attitude as reasonable. In another instance, I might present myself before an audience and place my briefcase on a table. If I should suddenly pick up the same briefcase and with an energetic and well-aimed throw, pitch it out the window, the audience, if no other explanation should be offered, would consider my action unreasonable. In both of these examples, the different actions appear unreasonable because they do not allow one to glimpse possible reasons for them. However, if I should throw my briefcase after four armed men had broken into the hall with their guns drawn, the audience would wonder what was in the briefcase and my action would not be felt to be unreasonable. If later I also explained that the case contained a treasure of inestimable value, the spectators would see clearly the reasonableness of my deed, which, although formally identical to the preceding one, would be perceived by the audience as being supported with reasons. Nor is this enough. I might approach the same audience and address it using a shipboard megaphone, explaining that I have brought the enormous instrument into the hall because I have lost my voice. My action would not be considered reasonable. Although I would have declared the reason for using the instrument, the loss of my voice, my listeners would not perceive it to be adequate because such an apparatus would seem out of place in an auditorium. However, using the same object on a ship would not raise a problem. Although the reason would be the same, it would then match the circumstances. Let us summarize. The same act in the first example, throwing the briefcase, seems unreasonable, that is, without reasons. 
and reasonable in the second, because it is understood that there are reasons for it. In the second example, to use a megaphone in an auditorium is judged unreasonable because even though there is a reason, it is deemed to be inadequate. While to utilize the same instrument on a ship, even though the reason is identical, is perceived as proportionate and adequate. In experience, therefore, the reasonable appeals when man's behavior shows itself to have adequate reasons. If reason means becoming aware of reality, this cognitive relation with the real must develop in a reasonable way. That is, the steps for establishing this relationship must be determined by adequate motives. This, from the point of view of the subject, is complementary to what we said about the object determining the method. We can say that the nature of the subject decides the way this method is used, and the nature of the subject is a being endowed with reason. Reductive use of reason. It is important not to limit the scope of the meaning of reasonableness. A. The word rational is often identified with the term demonstrable in the strict sense of the word. Now, it is not true that the entire human experience of the reasonable is contained in this identification. Although it is certain that the reasonable seeks, desires, aspires, and is curious to demonstrate everything, it is not true that reasonable is identical with demonstrable. The capacity to demonstrate is an aspect of reasonableness, but the reasonable is not solely the capacity to demonstrate. What does it mean to demonstrate? It means to retrace all of the steps of a process by which something comes into being. At school, if during a demonstration of a theorem, a step were skipped, the teacher would interrupt. This has not been demonstrated. In fact, all of the steps constitutive of a reality have to be retraced before we can say that we have a demonstration. But this does not exhaust the meaning of the term reasonable, because precisely the most interesting original aspects of reality are not demonstrable. The process to which we have just referred cannot be applied to them. For example, man cannot demonstrate how things exist. But the answer to the question of how things exist is supremely interesting to him. Even if one should prove that this table is made of a, of a material that has a given composition, he could never retrace all of the steps which brought this table into existence. B. The reasonable cannot be identified with the logical. Logic is an ideal of coherence. If you posit certain premises and develop them coherently, you will reach a logical outcome. If the premises are wrong, perfect logic will produce an erroneous result. The truly interesting question for man is neither logic, a fascinating game, nor demonstration, an inviting curiosity. Rather, the intriguing problem for man is how to adhere to reality, to become aware of reality. This is a matter of being compelled by reality, not one of logical consistency. To acknowledge a mother's love for her child is not the conclusion of a logical process. It is evident, a certainty, or a proposal made by reality whose existence one must admit. The existence of the desk at which I work, my mother's attachment to me, even if they should not be logically developed conclusions, are realities that correspond to truth, and it is reasonable to affirm them. Logic, coherence, demonstration, 
are no more than instruments of reasonableness at the service of a greater hand, the more ample heart that puts them to use. Nota bene. I think it is important to concentrate our attention more on the word reasonable rather than on the term reason. Indeed, reason itself, this ability to become aware of reality, can be used in an unreasonable manner, that is, without adequate reasons. In any case, the root of the problem lies in the concept of reason. I would like to recount an event that happened to me years ago and from which I have learned much. I was about to teach a religion class in a classical lyceum for the first time. As soon as I had reached my desk, and even before I had the chance to speak, I noticed a raised hand in the last row. I asked the student what he wanted. The answer, more or less, was the following. Excuse me, professor, but it is useless for you to come here and speak to us about faith, to reason about faith, because reason and faith represent two wholly different worlds. What can be said about faith has nothing to do with the exercise of reason and vice versa. Therefore, to reason about faith is to engage in a mystification. I asked the student what faith meant to him, and having received no answer, addressed the question to the whole class, with the same result. At that point, I asked the student in the last row to define reason, and, at his silence, again posed the question to the rest of the class. Again, I was met by silence. Then I said, how can you form a judgment on faith and reason without first having tried to become aware of what they are? You use words whose meanings you have not grasped. As might have been expected, my statement sparked a heated debate, and I became increasingly aware that the philosophy teacher has, had exerted a certain influence on these students. Leaving the room at the end of the class, I met that very teacher. Immediately, I told him I was astonished that the students thought it obvious that faith could have nothing to do with reason. His response was to state that the church had affirmed the same thing at the Second Council of Orange. I reminded him that every statement must be interpreted in the historical context from which it has arisen and whose views and concerns it expresses. To rip a sentence out of its cultural and literary context and to read it entirely as if it had been written in the present violates basic historical rules and does not allow for its correct understanding. At that point, the argument had widened and the group of students surrounding us had become larger. And even though it was already time to move on to the next class, I wanted the students to understand the nature of the argument between the philosophy teacher and myself. I asked him, Professor, I have never been to America, but I can assure you with certainty that America exists. I affirm this with the same certainty with which I state that you are before me at this very moment. Do you find my certainty reasonable? After a few moments of silence and evident embarrassment, the answer was no. This was the point which I wanted to make clear to the students, and this is also what I want to clarify now. My concept of reason embraces the idea that it can be most reasonable to admit that America exists without ever having seen it. The other teacher's idea of reason, on the contrary, led him to state that this is not a reasonable position. For me, reason is openness to reality, a capacity to seize and affirm it and all of its factors. For that other teacher, reason is the measure of things, and the phenomenon becomes true only when it be can be directly demonstrated. Diversity of Procedures What I'm about to say will simply exemplify the systematic way in which human reason, becoming aware of reality, 
proceeds using adequate motives. If I say a plus b times a minus b equals a squared minus b squared, I affirm an algebraic or mathematical value, one belonging to the field of mathematical truths. And how do I arrive at the point of being able to claim that a plus b times a minus b equals a squared minus b squared? I follow a certain path. I take steps on a road, hidden at first, as if by fog, one step after another. And finally, when the fog lifts, I am faced with the sight of truth, evidence, identity. I have taken a road, arrived at a certain point where things have become evident and the truth is in sight. It is like going through a tunnel and reaching, at a given moment, a terrace from which I can look upon nature. Let us examine two other examples. Water is H2O. To reach this conclusion, I do not solve a mathematical problem. I analyze the components of water and note the result. In my third example, one can ask, in relation to men, what rights do women have? A human being has certain rights. A woman is a human being. Therefore, she has the same rights as a man. I have not engaged in the resolution of elaborate mathematical formulas in order to understand that a woman has the same rights as a man, nor have I subjected the woman to a chemical analysis. Rather, I have followed a different path, and at a given point, the syllogism has made the truth evident to me. In Greek, the word for road is holos, and along the road, by the road, is methodon, from which our word method is derived. Method comes from the Greek, and procedure from the Latin. It is through a procedure, or process, that I arrive at a knowledge of the object. Reason, then, as the ability to become aware of reality, or values, that is, of the real insofar as it enters the human horizon, follows different methods in order to come to know certain values or types of truth. Precisely because reason examines the object according to adequate motives or steps, it develops different paths depending upon the object. The method is imposed by the object. Reason is not as arthritic or paralyzed as has been imagined by so much of modern philosophy, which has reduced it to a single operation, logic, or to a specific type of phenomenon, to a certain capacity for empirical demonstration. Reason is much larger than this. It is life, a life faced with the complexity and multiplicity of reality, the richness of the real. Reason is agile, goes everywhere, travels many roads. I have simplified and given examples. To employ reason is always a particular application of man's capacity to know. This capacity implies many methods, procedures, or processes, depending, about the, depending upon the type of object in question. Reason does not have a single method. It is polyvalent, rich, agile, and mobile. If this fundamental fact is not kept in mind, we risk falling into grave errors. Experts in a philosophical or theological method, if they claim to affirm a scientific truth, can make the same mistake as some gentlemen of the Holy Office did with Galileo Galilei. Experts in theological exegesis tried to make the Bible say what it had no intention of saying. But the Bible in no way wanted to define the structure of the cosmos. It spoke according to the mentality of the people of the time, affirming religious and ethical values. A particularly important procedure. Imagine Peter, John, and Andrew before Jesus of Nazareth. 
They knew his mother, father, and relatives. They fished and ate with him. At some point, it became evident to them that they could say of that man, If I should not believe this man, then I should not even believe my own eyes. Can this certainty be reasonable? If it can be so, what is the method that leads me to it? Let us remember that the method is no more than a description of reasonableness in the relation to the object. The method establishes the adequate reasons with which to take steps toward the knowledge of the object. But this can be expressed in yet other ways. I can say with certainty, my mother loves me. This is the most important aspect of motherhood because if I had been abandoned when I was two months old and had been adopted by another woman, my mother would be the one who accepted me if she loves me. My mother is a woman who loves me. Of this, I am as certain as of the light of the sun and even more confident than the fact that the earth turns around the sun in the sense that this is of greater interest to me and is more important for my life. From my perception of the real, from our relationship with destiny, it is more significant that this woman should love me than to acquire the knowledge that the earth turns around the sun. It is very beautiful that we have discovered that the earth revolves around the sun and not vice versa, because this is an aspect of the truth. However, as far as life is concerned, that is, the problem of my relation to destiny, this fact is not everything. Indeed, it has little to do with my problem as a whole. One final example. I have in mind some people of whom I would say, see, these are people who are friends, who are truly my friends. If I should be told to demonstrate it, what method could I use to do so? By reasoning about it? By the use of strange geometrical formulas? By the application of some scientific method? No. What was true about my mother's love is equally applicable to this situation. There are realities values which one cannot come to know utilizing the three methods we have mentioned these are values that touch on human behavior not in its mechanical aspects which can be identified with sociology or psychology but with respect to its meaning as the examples illustrate can you trust that man or not up to what point can you rely on him what qualities can be valuable to you in another person is such and such a person loyal or not the certain knowledge of these values cannot be acquired by the methods we have discussed, and yet no one can deny that you can reach a reasonable certainty about them. One sphere of realities of which conscience can become aware, then, is that of moral realities, or truths as defined in the etymological sense, that is, insofar as they describe human behavior, which in Latin is called mors. In the search for truths and certainties about human behavior, reason must be used in a different way. Otherwise, it is no longer reasonable. To claim to define human behavior using a scientific method would not be an adequate procedure. A few examples should suffice to illustrate this point. Imagine that I went to my mother's tonight and found that she prepared a delicious supper for me. Suppose, instead of throwing myself at the plate, famished, I simply stared at the food. She would ask, do you not feel well? To which I would answer, I feel fine, but I would very much like to analyze this food to make sure it is not poison. Naturally, my mother would reply, you are always kidding. On the other hand, if she thought that my remark was serious, she would not call in a chemist, but a psychiatrist. I do not have to submit the food in question to a chemical analysis to be sure that my mother does not intend to poison me.
Let us also suppose that I should meet a friend at a streetcar stop. Hello, I call out to him. Hello, how are you? He replies. He gets on the streetcar, but I stay behind. When the car begins to move, my friend sticks his head out the window and asks, Why did you get on? And I answer, As long as the transit authority does not psychologically examine its drivers at every stop, I am no longer using streetcars. That streetcar would take a year to cross the city. Mathematics, the sciences, and philosophy are necessary for the evolution of man as history. They are fundamental conditions for civilization. But one could live very well without philosophy, or without knowing that the earth revolves around the sun. Man cannot live, however, without moral certainties, without being able to form sure judgments about the behavior of others toward him. This is so true that uncertainty in relationships is one of the most terrible afflictions of our generation. It is difficult to become certain about relationships, even within the family. We live as if we were seasick, with such insecurity in the fabric of our relations that we no longer build what is human. We might construct skyscrapers, atomic bombs, the most subtle systems of philosophy, but we no longer build the human because it consists of relationships. This is why nature, in certain fields, has created a method, a path, a type of slow development to arrive at certain truths. We must take all of the steps in a fixed way. Otherwise, we are unsure of being able to proceed. Consequently, some truths are reached only after centuries and even millennia. On the other hand, to arrive at certainties about relationships, we have been given the fastest of methods, almost more like an intuition than a process. This fourth method is much closer to the artist's approach than to the technicians or the demonstrators, because man needs it to live in the instant. One method produces mathematical certainty, another scientific, and yet another philosophical. The fourth method yields certainties about human behavior, moral certainties. I have stated that, as a method, the last one is closer to the approach of the artist or the genius, who, through signs, proceeds to the perception of the true. When Newton saw the famous apple fall, it became a sign that immediately produced his great hypothesis. Genius needs only a small indication to reach a universal intuition. The method by which I understand that my mother loves me and through which I am certain that many people are my friends cannot be fixed mechanically. My intelligence intuits that the only reasonable meaning the only reasonable interpretation of the convergence of a given set of signs is this. If these signs, and their hundreds and thousands, could be indefinitely multiplied, their only adequate meaning would be that my mother loves me. Thousands of indications converge on this point. My mother's behavior only means this. My mother loves me. The demonstration of a moral certainty is the consequence of a complex of indications whose only adequate meaning, whose only adequate motive, and whose only reasonable reading is that certainty itself. This is called not just a moral certainty, but also an existential certainty, because it is bound to the moment at which you examine the phenomenon, that is, when you intuit all of the signs. An example, I am not worried that the person now in front of me may want to kill me. Not even after this statement does this person want to kill me if only for the satisfaction of proving that I am wrong. I reach this conclusion by reading certain facets of his behavior and a specific situation. But I could not be as certain about the future, 
when the circumstances might be very different. Two important points. The first, I will be able to be certain about you to the extent that I pay more attention to your life. That is, that I share in your life. The signs leading to certainty become multiplied in the measure in which you pay attention to them. For example, in the gospel, who was able to understand the need to trust that man? Not the crowd looking for a cure, but those who followed him and shared his life. Life together, convivenza, and shared. The second, inversely, the more powerfully one is human, the more one is able to become certain about another on the basis of only a few indications. This is the human genius, the genius that is able to read the truth of behavior, of man's way of life. The more powerfully human one is, the more one is able to perceive with certainty. To trust is good, but not to trust is better. This proverb offers a rather superficial kind of wisdom because the capacity to trust another is proper to the strong and secure man. The insecure man does not even trust his own mother. The more one is truly human, the more one is able to trust because one understands the reasons for believing in another. To express this in another way, one who has a knack for a certain subject needs only a clue to intuit the solution to the problem. While everyone else has to work laboriously through every step. To have a knack for something is like having a certain affinity for it. The knack for being human entails possessing much humanity. It is then that I can know up to what point I can trust in your humanity. In applying this method, it is as if one makes a fast comparison with oneself, with one's own elementary experience, with one's own heart, and says, up to this point, what I see corresponds with my heart, with those needs and evidences, with what I was made for. Therefore, it is true, and I can trust this other human being. An application of the method of moral certainty, faith. What is faith? It is an adhesion to what another affirms. This may be unreasonable if there are no adequate reasons. If there are, it is reasonable. If I have reached the certainty that another person knows what he says and does not mislead me, then to repeat with certainty what he has affirmed with certainty is to be consistent with myself. It is exactly through this process of moral certainty that I can reach conclusions about the sincerity and capacity of another person. Without this cognitive method of faith, there would be no human development. If the only reasonableness consisted in evidence that was immediate or personally demonstrated, as was the contention of the teacher of philosophy regarding America, man could no longer move forward because each of us would have to go through all of the processes again. We would always be cavemen. In this sense, the question of moral certainty is the main problem of life as existence, but through it also of life as civilization and culture, because all that is produced by the other three methods we mentioned can become the basis for a new thrust forward only on the strength of this fourth method. I hope it has become evident why, in this premise, I focused on the necessity for reasonableness. The object of a study requires realism, the method is imposed by the object, but concomitantly and complementarily with this, it is necessary that the application of this method respect the need for reasonableness, which is proper to man's nature, 
and reasonableness means having adequate motives in every step we take toward the object of our knowledge. The diversity of methods establishes their order. A method is a locus of adequate motives. It would be unreasonable to require that in order to be sure about man's behavior, scientific criteria had to, had to be applied and that if these could not, a certainty could not be reached. This position is unreasonable because it is not based upon adequate motives as our observation of experience has illustrated. Conversely, certainty about human behavior may be well-founded and therefore completely reasonable. Our life is made up of this type of reasonableness. I speak of our most interesting life, that of relationships, but also in the end of that life of relationships that establishes history and by which even discoveries made by other methods are handed down. Finally, let us note that man can err using the scientific, philosophical, or mathematical methods. In the same way, he can misjudge human behavior. This does not detract from the fact that certainties may be reached by the scientific method and in the same way through the method of moral knowledge.